0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on money, 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 money. Um, specifically our sometimes nutty and often confusing relationship to it. And we're going to talk today about how we can learn to take control over and understand our relationship with money and then how we can learn to navigate the personal power that we get when we're actually in command of our own finances. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to take your calls. Do you want advice on how to save more or how to spend less, how to top that middle-of-the-night insomniac purchasing. Yes, I'm one of those people. Or get some help in understanding why you can't manage to do either. Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-766. Because today's guest is just the woman for the job. Jean Chatsky is the award winning financial editor of NBC Today and the founder of and CEO of Her Money Media, which provides women with information about money that they can actually trust. Today, we're going to talk about her new book, Women with Money The Judgment Free Guide to Creating the Joyful, Less Stressed, purful, Purposeful, and Yes, Rich Life that You Deserve. Jean is a fierce advocate for financial literacy and a compassionate coach who shares her wisdom through her 11 best-selling books, her many segments on places like Oprah, MSNBC, The View, and CNN. Millions have tuned in to her podcast, Her Money with Jean Chatsky, which has received shout-outs from The New York Times, Yahoo Finance, and Refinery29. She is AARP's financial ambassador, as well as a Penn alumna, who we couldn't be more proud to welcome back to the show. So with that, Jean, welcome back to Women. At work. Thank you for
1: having me. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, it's our pleasure. So, Jean, I've got a lot of questions for you, but the first one is: This book feels different than the books you've written before. Why did you write this book now?
1: It, it feels a little different to me too. I, I don't think I started off um, intending to get as personal as I got in this book, but it it got there fairly quickly. <laughs> I I came at this topic. Um, which I've, I've written about before, but for different reasons. When, when you look at where women are in our economic lifestyle, mm-hmm. economic life cycle, so to speak, um, we've got a lot more money than we've ever had. We've got a lot more financial power than we've ever had. And looking at the demographic trends, we're going to have much more than that in the not-too-distant future. Um, When you look at college graduation rates, we see women graduating at vastly higher numbers than we see men. Um, We see, uh, looking at the um, inheritances that Mm -hmm. are coming down the pike, women are going to inherit twice, not just from our parents along with our brothers, but uh, we're going to inherit from the spouses that we outlive. And the end result is that Within a couple of decades, women will control about two-thirds of the wealth in the United States and 75% of the discretionary spending around the world. So it's significant, and yet we don't feel prepared for it.
0: That's an important point because it's kind of mind-boggling when you talk about those statistics, and they're all real. Yet at the same time, my own experience with it, what I hear from other women, and what you talk about in your book is that, our emotional relationship to money does not match up with the kind of power that we're having when it's aggregated and you look at it from a distance.
1: Right. And it feels like because all of this money and power is coming our way, we really need to catch up and we need to catch up quickly. Yes. So that's why I put pen to paper for, <laughs> for this book. Um, and I started just by asking hundreds of women, what do you want? You know, when you think about your money, what do you want it to get you? Um, And let them lead me in the direction of putting together a program that would accomplish those things.
0: What was the most surprising thing that you learned in talking to all these women?
1: Well, in asking that question, um, the most surprising thing was how fervent the need for safety and security is. It's it stands in the way of everything else, sometimes to our detriment. How so? So, Well, when I asked that question, what do you want? What I heard before I heard uh, about the the, the wish list Mm -hmm. was I want security, I want stability, I want safety, I want savings, as in money in the bank. And we feel like we need to put ourselves on stable ground, sometimes that means leaving money in the bank when really the money should be working for us in the markets if it's going to help us play a long game. And and women, as you know, have to play a longer game than men do just Mm -hmm. because we live longer.
0: How much of that recurring theme that you heard was a byproduct of women just being risk averse and how much of it is informed by the lives that women really lead and an awareness of the importance of those things?
1: I think it's probably a good mix. I mean, I heard it in in a number of different ways. I heard I I want not just a car, but I want a safe car with every mm-hmm. um, every airbag and, you know, State of the art backup cameras. I want. <laughs> um, I want not just a house. I want a house with a paid-off mortgage that nobody can take away from me. I think some of that, and and particularly some, particularly some of the the yearning for um, large sums of money in the bank. Some of that, I think, is is the risk aversion that we've heard so much about. But I also think, to your point, it's risk aversion that we can't blame ourselves for when we look at studies of um, couples who divorce. It's women who fall into poverty after divorce, mm-hmm. not men. When we look at studies of um, when we look at studies of, of being safe in the world, women are not as safe as men in the world. It's it's women who are victims of ninety percent of sexual assault and rape. It, it's women who do not feel as safe walking home at night in our neighborhoods. I, I looked at this study that the Gallup organization has done for years about um, women literally walking home at night in their neighborhood Mm -hmm. and uh, only 60, I believe, uh, maybe even less, the the number of women who said that they felt safe was significantly lower than the number of men who said that they felt safe. So then I I looked at whether money could solve this problem. I, I, I looked at a cut of the data. That only looked at the wealthiest women. Women in the wealthiest neighborhoods, still, thirty percent said they did not feel safe. Only seventy percent felt safe, and and that is not something that um, that's not something that you can blink away. Right. That's not some if that's something that you live with every day, that kind of fear, that kind of insecurity, of course, it's going to show up in your financial
0: habits. And that's also a fear that's about geography and resources. And when we come to how does money make you safe, money can insulate you. Sometimes it can yeah. insulate you from seeing what the world really is like around you, but in those cases, in important ways, it can give you a ride home. It can make sure that there are lights on your street. It can let you take a taxi. It can enable or an Uber. It can let you do things that protect you so that you're not as vulnerable.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And so, um, I, I laid those out in the book as as a, a sort of explanation for why we are. As a, a universal population of women, um, perhaps less willing and able to take risks than we should be, but then also we have to look at who we are as individuals mm-hmm. and, and where our individual histories with money came from and how they impact us. I was um, a couple of weeks ago. I was I was at the MIT. Um, Age Lab, which is part of the MIT Media Lab, and the, the guy who, who runs this place, who is a researcher named Joe Coghlan, said, emotion puts money in motion. And I, I wrote oh, wow. that down because I think, I know, I've never heard that before. That's worthy of a tweet. Is, right? It is. It's so provocative because it's so true. Yes. Um, and yet many of us do not understand our own emotional relationships to money. And you got to dig into that before you can change your habits and your behaviors um, and the tactical situation that you've got going on.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about this because there was a way, even in reading your book, that different emotions got triggered in me. Um, And I Ah. found myself at, you know, 930 at night as I'm sitting with the book in my reading chair. I'm like, oh, my God, I should move more money into my retirement account. I would feel better. And I realized that that was a moment where I might have been prompted by a certain anxiety and some cautioning by you um, to make sure that I'm maximizing my retirement. But there are also ways that we do unhealthy things, things that are not good for us, that are driven by emotions. Could you talk a little bit about that and how we can learn to understand what those patterns are?
1: Yeah, we have to understand what our own individual patterns are, and that means taking a little bit of time to look back on how you were raised, and what the emotions around money were in your home of origin, um, which is not something that most of us have ever taken a look at. Uh, It's not what your parents tried to teach you about money. It's not whether or not you got an allowance or whether there were jars on your dresser for saving and spending (laughs) and giving back. Right. It's, It's, whether it's what was in the air it's whether on payday um there was tension Mm -hmm. um when the credit card bill arrived did doors start to slam um were there a lot of arguments around money was it something that um you knew had to be avoided because it was going to cause tension um or was there just this overall feeling of of tension Those are the sorts of things that that impact us to this day. Those are what people call your money story or your money script. And you need to know what yours is, which means taking the time to think back to what messages did I receive, you know, not necessarily verbally, but about money from my parents when I was growing up. How How is that leading me to behave today? Um, and we've got a lot of examples in the book um, from various women who were willing to take a look at it and, and say, oh, you know, this is, this is what happened to me. Another, because once you recognize it, you can change it.
0: Absolutely. One of the things I loved that you put in the book was an exercise for the reader. And I went through it and did it. And um, at first, it was kind of hard. I hadn't ever, th- and I've done a lot of introspection with the help of professionals, but I had never thought about those questions. And one of the things that I all of a sudden remembered, I hadn't thought about probably in 30 years, was that um, every Friday my mother, my father gave my mother an allowance. Mm-hmm. And a way that it rattled me. And that I went into my adult life with the idea that I would always be self sufficient. And it wasn't because of something they taught me. Like you said, it was something I saw that I had an emotional reaction to.
1: Right. And, and so what's interesting about you and your experience is that it ten, it, these, these things tend to lead us to either do as our parents did or do the exact opposite. And, <laughs> and clearly yours led you down that latter path.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, and my guest today is Jean Chatsky. She's the founder and CEO of Her Money Media and the author of a great new book called Women with Money. If you want to join in the conversation, share your own money stories or questions you have about how to change your habits and patterns, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844 942 Six, six. So, Jean, as you were exploring um, your own money stories, you know, one, I loved how, you know, you shared a lot about your own personal discoveries in your life. Um, could you share with us one of the things that you realized was important to you that you then uncovered by examining this?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I, so I learned a lot about myself and my um, and my, uh, attitudes and reactions toward, toward money, um, around my 40th birthday, which <laughs> is when I turned 40, which in and of itself is not fun, but, um, it was when I got divorced or separated. It was when my father died and, and I started saving at that point like, like a crazy person. I mean, it, it's what made me feel safe at that, at that time. Um, but I, I looked back to, Um, my family of origin and realized I got all of the messages about how to, how to prioritize saving as, as a very young child, I remembered, and it was one of those things that I hadn't thought about for years. But when my, um, when my family was planning our first trip to Disney world, I think Disney world was actually relatively new at the time. I was probably 10, Mm -hmm. 12, 13 years old we had a family piggy bank that we, we called the pig. Um, I think it was actually a bull, but we called it the pig. And um, my my for years, I would watch my, my father and my mother, mostly my father, stash um, silver dollars, silver half dollars, occasionally some sort of a bill, but mostly those big coins in. And before we went, we sat around in the living room. We opened it for the first time in my life. Shook it out, and and there was enough money in it to pay for the entry fees to the parks, um, and that was a big that was a big deal. That and is that was an a big amazing deal for lesson. My parents, but it was a big deal. It was a big deal for for us as kids too.
0: So one of the so it's delightful. It, it it's a great story about what you learned and how you remembered it and when you remembered it to show that these things are emotionally potent. But also yeah. in my story, in your story. Um, some of this is also about family dynamics and the relationships between parents, that it sounds like this was a joint effort on your part. I know in our household, our parents, my parents had very different roles with our finances and with money and different ways of a, relating to it. In my own marriage, we did. Um, so what advice do you have for people who are starting to build their family about setting up a healthy relationship with money?
1: so if you've got another person in your bed you need to know their money story as much as you need to know your money story right otherwise it's it's very very easy to think that our, our spouse or partner is being irrational when it comes to money if they don't do things the way that we do things but money is one of those areas where opposites attract and so you may be find you may find yourself drawn to somebody who is a great favor if you are more of a spender yourself you know things tend to go in in waves like that but understand why you know if you can understand why they are the way they are because you've done this exercise you'll be a lot more compassionate and a lot um, more empathetic about the different things that they're going through and then you can set up systems that enable you to deal with this so one of the one of the Examples that I have in the book: A woman. This was just an unbelievable story, except for the fact that it's true. Um, a woman explained that her her father was a financial planner. She was raised with values of poverty. They, you know, we don't we don't have enough. We don't have enough. They would go to stoop sales on the weekend. One night, I get I think they lived in a in a small town. One night, they went to the local dairy cleaner. Father took her and, and her siblings. And she said everybody was coming up to her dad at the Dairy Queen and talking to him. And she realized her father owned the Dairy <laughs> Queen. That, that, you know, this narrative of we have no money, we have no money just wasn't true. But it still, it still gets her to this day, even though she and her husband are doing fine she feels like there's never enough, and it's really hard for her to spend money particularly on her. And the way that she dealt with it was to set up a slush fund that is specifically for spending on her.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Um, and
1: and it's, helped, it's, helped with the, it's helped with the issue. It, it has enabled her to sort of, if the money is in that account, she is able to let go
0: of it. So, Jean, I have to tell you, my producer, Patty, has a question for you. She's going to chime in
2: for a second. Hey, Patty. Hi, Jean. Um, I have, wow, well, you really hit on a topic that is close to home for me. Um, my husband and I have the complete opposite view of money. My husband is the woman you were talking about. Um, <laughs> afraid to spend money, uh, worried about finances, even though we have a good reserve in the bank, um, For me, someone who grew up with nothing and my mother struggled, um, I think we're rich. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'll go on Amazon and I'll buy a couple things and they show up at the house and my husband is like, what did you buy? And he gets really upset and he goes, you need to talk to me about that stuff first. And I just thought it would be interesting to bring it up because, of course, I want advice on how we can handle that because it's the number one thing that we fight about. The number one thing. And, um, and, um... I know I don't handle it well I think he overreacts but maybe I'm wrong so hopefully you can advise me and I'm sure the other couples that are listening right now
1: (laughs) you're not the only one right money is the number one thing that all couples fight about at least if we look at it statistically more than in laws more than sex it's it's money at the top of the list Um, I, I think there are two strategies that might work here I mean if if you've done the exercise of setting your sort of short, medium, and long-term goals, and knowing how much money is being put away for those things, as well as how much you need to pay your bills on a monthly basis, then you have a better handle on what's discretionary, and that can help. Um, that can help with these kinds of. Um, Decisions. I don't. I don't think it's healthy for uh, for either member of a couple to have to ask permission to spend. You know, relatively uh, to spend amounts of money that are relatively meaningless within the context of their financial life. Mm-hmm. You may figure out that if you take that discretionary pool and you divide it up. You can have money that is yours to do with as you wish, and he can have money that is his to do with as he wishes, and you can agree that you don't have to talk about that money. It can be a separate credit card. It can be a separate debit card or a separate bank account. Um, You can also try, if you've merged everything and you don't want to unmerge everything, you can also try drawing a line in the sand as far as an amount. So if it's over $500, $500, then of course we'll talk about it, but we don't need to talk about it up to that amount. If it's, oh, and it can be, you know, if it's over 1000 I mean, it, it would have to be an amount that would make sense within the context of your financial life, but it doesn't, you know, it, it's not doing anybody any good for you to order socks and have to explain why you needed socks.
2: Uh, I'm going to take this recording home tonight <laughs> and play it for my husband um I hope he's not listening but um (laughs) no and and that's just the thing I mean I I mean obviously and then I'll let you move on but it's the purchases I'm making are not I mean I would never buy something for a thousand dollars and not talk to my husband about it but it's he he worries a lot about money and I mean I don't think I worry enough So that's the dichotomy there, and
1: it sounds. That's why saving the goal. That's why making sure that you're hitting your marks as far as saving for your short, medium, and long-term goals comes first.
0: It also sounds like it's a mechanism to prevent the conflict from being greater than the amount of money that you're fighting about. That it's the that the socks that you order in the middle of the night become a holding space for an anxiety about boundaries and trust and partnership. And so I think all this advice is great because it gives you kind of a a clean playing field, some agreed-upon tactics, um, and then you don't have to have the fights in the places that aren't worth it.
1: Yeah. But it can also be a control issue. Mm. Um, I mean, I I know couples where there is plenty of money. And um, one, usually often the husband is still incredibly um, detailed and and nervous about controlling, you know, about small amounts that are that are going in moving in and out that are truly inconsequential to the workings of their financial life. That's about control. Mm-hmm. You know, that's about that's about um, if I that's about exuding, you know, control over your life, control over your relationship. It, it doesn't sound like, that's what's happening here. But, um, but if it is, that's something to explore, too.
0: Absolutely. So I want to talk about something at the other end of the spectrum of relationships, because I think in the cases that we're talking about, these are mature relationships, people who have live together, are coupled. Um, but You said something earlier. Um, if there's a person in your bed, you should know their money story. At what point in a relationship should you start talking about money, and how do you approach it?
1: think when things get serious i mean i'm i'm not uh, there are studies there's a study we, we put it in our newsletter last week about um and we have a so at her money we have a we have a couple of free newsletters that we publish every every week in addition to our podcast so if people are interested they can go to hermoney.com and press subscribe and you can get our get our newsletters We we put a story in our newsletter about millennials and how Um, They are sharing information about their credit scores and and the amount of debt they're carrying much, much earlier than prior generations. Um, I think when you get to the point where you know you're going to be spending significant amounts of time with a person and you want to uh, lay out some rules for how you're going to pay for the things that you're buying Mm -hmm. together or apart or that you're doing together or apart, it's an it's an okay time to have a preliminary money conversation. I mean, if one person is significantly more able to afford things than another, then you don't want it to be a, a source of tension. You want, you know, if you want to spend time with somebody, but you can't do all the things they want to do because you can't afford them, it, it's okay to put that out there and say, can we think of things to do that are a little less expensive sometimes? I'd like to pick up the bill. I just can't do it in this restaurant. Um as the relationship gets further down the road, and, and that'll lead to discussions about, I mean, so many people are carrying so much in student loan debt, mm-hmm. right? If, that, if that's a burden, that's something that somebody that you're spending significant amounts of time with should, should know about.
0: And I also um, appreciate that you put it in the context if there's somebody in your bed. If you're intimate with them in some part of your life, you should be able to be honest with them about these other factors in your life. I think so. I think it's part of being healthy and being safe, and it's advice I'm going to give to my daughter when the time comes. Okay. Um, we need to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm going to continue my discussion with Gene Chatsky in just a few minutes. In the meantime, our phones are going to stay open. You can call into Patty, who will empathetically listen to your questions and share them with us. Our phone number is 844 Wharton. That's 844 942 7866. You can also email us, as Juliet Cinnaminson often does, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I am Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. And we'll be back in just a few minutes with Gene Chatsky and more of our money talk. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is the amazing Jean Chatsky. Jean is the founder and CEO of Her Money Media, a fierce advocate for financial literacy, and the author of a new book, Women with Money <coughs> The Judgment Free Guide to Creating the Joyful, Less Stressed, Purposeful, and Yes, Rich life you deserve. Uh, Jean, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you. So one of the things that you mentioned before the break, actually in the beginning of the show, is you were giving us a framework for why this book is so important right now, that we're living in a world where women are increasingly have more money than we've ever had before, more power over that money than we've had before, and that um, women are going to wind up being responsible for two-thirds of the world's wealth. Yet at the same time, I saw a statistic that said women owe two-thirds of all college debt, but only make up 50% of college graduates. So given that in the big picture, we are we know we're going to wind up being responsible for money. How do we make sure at the start of our adult story, we don't wind up overly in debt?
1: Uh. That is such a good question, and it's a question for women and men, right? I mean, the the amount of debt that students today are carrying, um, particularly um, in careers where they may not earn a, a Wall Street salary mm-hmm. or a law salary or a doctor salary, is is just um, is just difficult to deal with. I think that the the long-term answer is that we have to look at college as a value proposition. And even if you, I I know it's unrealistic to ask kids who are going into college, how much or what they think they're going to do when they come out. I mean, if you had asked me when I was starting Penn, what I thought I would do when I come out, it certainly wouldn't be this having, having, you know, and my, my kids were exactly the same. And, I think what that what that argues for is is borrowing based on lower than anticipated earnings. Um, the the general rule of thumb is that you really should only be borrowing in total the amount that you expect to earn in your first year out of college.
0: That's um, really and a, interesting.
1: And a lot of people are, are borrowing, you know, many, many times that I, I would say to anybody and and it's not always it's not always our fault, right? There is a mm-hmm. there is a fascinating but really really disturbing story in the New York Times today about for-profit graduate schools
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and the amount of debt people are taking out for master's degrees in in um, fields where they will never. You know, where they will earn enough to pay it back eventually, I hope, but it will be really, really difficult. Um, It it argues for finding schools that want you to attend so much. They are willing to offer you significant chunks of merit aid, not aid that has to be paid back. Mm -hmm. Um, Those schools are out there. Yes. Um, But you've got to cast, we have to cast a wider net than than many families are casting
0: today absolutely it's that the equation is so different also as you noted based on different fields and part of the dynamic is that there are fields that women traditionally go into that pay less than the fields that men go into so the other thing that i'd encourage is for young women also to be open and brave about the kind of fields that you go into as long as you're interested in them
1: yep and no no question
0: And to partner it then with schools that are offering you reasonable aid packages. Um, I think one of the next pivotal points in our lives where we kind of set our financial course is when we negotiate our first salary. And you have a great part of the book where you talk about being under-earners and the wage gap and the parts of the wage gap that are a byproduct of our lack of awareness and ability to negotiate. Could you give us some advice, especially for those kids out there who are embarking on their first jobs, they're going out and interviewing now that graduation is over, um, what should we be mindful of as we go through the process?
1: Do some homework. I mean, there's so much on the Internet these days about what jobs – pay, what jobs do pay on sites like Payscale and Glassdoor and Salary.com. So you can do a little bit of smoothing before you go in and interview for a particular job. And then whatever the original offer is, ask for more. Don't throw out the first number if you can at all um, avoid it. Sometimes it's really difficult. Um, But if you do have to throw out a number, throw out a high one. And know that it will be a negotiation. Um, 57% of men, young men negotiate for their first job out of college. Only 7% of women do. And the problem is that all of our next salaries hinge off that first salary. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I mean, that hopefully that is changing with prior employers no longer being able to ask you what you are making today in some states like New York. Um, But it's, It is, um, it's a big, big hurdle to overcome. So, think about, um, think about, and know your facts before you go in. Just like you know your facts when you went in.
0: When you're negotiating for that first job, what are the other places that that number impacts? Because it's not just your salary.
1: No, of course not. It's your, it's your retirement benefits. um, The, the contribution that gets made to. Um, the contribution that gets made to your retirement accounts, your four hundred one k, it's it is, um, it, you know, it. I think I mean I, I don't know what other things you're thinking about, but it. it
0: no, those it are does, some big it ones.
1: Cycles into into lots of other areas in your life,
0: including Social Security long term, your company's yeah. matching benefits. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and so, what you earn over your lifetime, the gap between women and men starts at that moment. And so That's it's worth right. it to go in prepared. And one of the things that you talked about was something that I never would have dreamed of, um, certainly in my first jobs and even well into my adult life, which was to ask other people what they were making. It seemed so taboo to pry.
1: It still seems taboo.
0: And I will it, talk millennials about...
1: Millennials are doing it.
0: And I'll talk about amazingly intimate things with my women friends, but not that. Why are we yeah. so afraid to talk about money and how do we move past it?
1: Um, we're afraid to do it because people told us not to do it for, you know, for, and we're good for girls. years and years. We were told that that's exactly right. The the nice thing is that talking about this in, in day-to-day conversation is easier once you practice. It's like a lot of different things. If you can get yourself to do it once the next time it's, it's easier. Um, <laughs> like and that's most true things. of negotiating too. Yeah. Um, you know, if you are asking whether you're, whether you're asking for a salary, whether you're asking for a rate if you are running your own business, um, the more you get yourself comfortable with just saying this is what it is the the um the easier it is.
0: You had a marvelous line in the book when you were talking about um you were talking about Hillary Clinton, but it was the difference of how we see a woman when she advocates on our behalf versus when she advocates on her own behalf. Um, you know well, yeah the difference of how she was perceived as Secretary of State versus as a candidate. Um, for women who are going in to negotiate on their own behalf, um, how do you recommend that they, we start the conversation?
1: It's not about you and what you need. It's about what you bring to or have brought to the company. Um, it, is, it, is, it is all about the other person and what you can do. Or have them for them, and as granular as you can get about that con- about those things, um, the better you can show that you've had an impact on the bottom line. Um, then that is, you know, magic.
0: So rather than saying, "I've worked here for ten years, so I deserve a raise," to say over no, the last ten that. over the last ten years, I've helped the company meet these goals, start these initiatives, retain this talent. And that has value to the organization. Exactly. That's really helpful. Um, In case you just tuned in, this is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Jean Chansky. She is the financial editor of NBC Today and author of many books, the latest called Women with Money. If you have a question about your money, give us a call at one 844 That's 844 942 6-6. Six, six. So Jean, one of the things that you write about, the book, um, write about in the book that I thought was laid out so beautifully, you made such complicated things accessible, was when we want to start our own businesses and what we're starting them, why, what we're trying to do, and how we should think about them depending on what our motivations are. And you broke it down into kind of two different types of business. Could you tell us what they are and how we should think about them?
1: Yeah, I, I talked about um, necessity entrepreneurs versus opportunity mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. And um, it, basically necessity entrepreneurs are people who start a business because they have to. Um, you, you might get fired from your last job or, um, or downsized or have to leave for, for some other reason. And rather than finding another Job, you hang out a shingle, mm-hmm. um, maybe because you're having trouble finding that next job. Um, opportunity entrepreneurs see a niche in the marketplace and they go for it. And um, opportunity entrepreneurs often grow faster. Um, they they often have larger goals. Uh, I, I think I think both are fine. You just need to know what you what you are. I mean, in my case. Um, I think I'm an I'm a necessity entrepreneur who turns into an opportunity. I was going to ask
0: if one can become the other.
1: Yeah, so I I um, started my uh, first company when I left my last full time magazine job. Um, left being a generous word, I I got fired, downsized, whatever you whatever you want to call it at Money Magazine, <laughs> and I already had a, a bunch of, of side gigs. And uh, I just decided that instead of looking for another magazine job, I was going to try to expand those side gigs and um, and get more clients. And, and that's how I, I grew my business. And I launched Her Money only about a year ago um, when I started noticing that I, there really was no most trusted place for women to get financial information and decided that I would build
0: that. So what's interesting there is, like you said, you needed to, you know, generate an income, be in the field. You weren't, you were going to, you know, become an early member of the gig economy. But you're, you astutely saw where there was a need. In the book, you talk about where people aren't focused on need, but instead they're focused on something they have to offer. What are the pros and cons of when we say, I have an X that I think would I could make money on or I want to do Y for the world. How should we be thinking about that?
1: So those things are, um, we need to think about whether we can make money doing those things. Um, it, it, these are the days, I think, where the internet, for good or for bad, has made it so possible for us to hang out shingles, to, to pick up additional income, to try to pursue this idea that we've always been so passionate about before you quit your day job so to speak or before you stop doing whatever it is you have been doing in order to support yourself you got to figure out if this other idea will support yourself will support you and and to me that means road testing um nights weekends um until you're really really sure that it has legs
0: There were a a number of pieces of advice you gave that I thought were really brilliant. Um, One of them was the question of what happens if it takes off. Like my best friend and I had this dream. Um, She had made an absolutely beautiful chuppah, the canopy that you get married under for my wedding. And we Mm -hmm. thought, oh, we could go into business. We could be chuppah makers. What are the things that you need to think about? What if all of a sudden there was um, a convention of Jewish weddings, and they now wanted to sell a thousand chuppahs in a month. Are you prepared to deal with that? What are some right. of those ty- types of quest- questions that you need to ask yourself when you're thinking about this cottage industry that you want to turn into a real business?
1: Um, I-, I think you have to look at the impact on your life, right? And and ask yourself what you really are signing up for. I mean, if if there are some people who are most happy when it is a hobby,
2: you know, mm. when it is a
1: part-time endeavor. When that they they, they want to do this, they want it to be successful, but they don't necessarily want it to take over and become Etsy, right? You don't want you don't want to have a business that's, that's that size, um, or maybe you do, but. This is these are the sorts of questions that you you think about when you're deciding if it's just going to be you, if it's going to be you and somebody else, if it's going to be you and a whole bunch of people. You know, do you do you want to do you just want to supplement your income or are you looking to build something of sustainable value that you could at one day exit?
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: You could sell. You could you could. um, There's value in the entity itself.
0: One of the things that you talked about was your own uh, fantasy about starting bakery or becoming a baker, and you gave some yeah, great which advice I
1: had for a long time um, <laughs> until I went to cooking school and I very quickly put on twenty pounds <laughs> and um, and decided that spending that much time in a kitchen was not so that I mean I love to cook but I, that that was not not wonderful for me.
0: The morning so. run wasn't going to fix that
1: wasn't going to fix that um and and so I you know I, I put that on the back shelf and it pursued other things and I I um I do bake sourdough bread on a regular basis but um other than that I I don't really um I don't really have any desire to get up at four in the morning and and be you know be huddling
0: around the hot stove. For the people out there who, A, they're early risers, they're game, they love it enough, and they either don't care about the 20 pounds, or that's not the place that they go wild. But they're still interested. in you offered some advice about um, what you can observe about the business of the bakery, for example, and this could apply to any retail business, um, that actually included a little observational study. Can you talk to us about what you recommended and why?
1: Sure. I um, there, I, I I had a lot of fantastic interviews for this book, but um, some with business consultants who really talked about how do you figure out what the market is for your product? How can you how can you learn this when you don't have a lot of money to spend on doing market research? Um, and particularly when it comes to smaller ventures like this, you can observe. You can um, you can go and you can sit in a bakery. Um, you can. You can watch the number of customers that come in and out. You can sit in the parking lot and watch the number of cars that drive past. You can get a sense of what the flow's like. Granted, you're not going to open your exact bakery on that exact corner, but you can watch what's selling. Is it the donuts? Is it the brownies? Is it the bagels? You know, do people get a cup of coffee? Do they care if it's Starbucks or not Starbucks? You can, you can pay attention to all of those things and you can learn a lot along the way
0: because they're all factors in what the business needs to be successful and what the challenges are that it's going to face. Exactly. So when it comes to doing things like market research, um, which is really what that's a form of, um, what are other tools that you would direct budding entrepreneurs to? What did you use to see if there was a market out there for your ideas? I
1: road-tested my ideas with my podcast. So my podcast... um, which is called her money and is available everywhere. You get podcasts podcasts, podcast was around a, a good two years before we launched her money. And I listened to my listeners who were, we have a mailbag segment where I answer questions and, and they were writing in in great numbers and telling us what they liked and what they didn't like about the podcast. We did some surveying of the listenership of the podcast to see what they wanted more of, what they wanted less of, and it became very clear to me very quickly that there was a, a, a greater hunger for that information. And so I followed that path and and really listened to what they were telling me in building out her
0: money. So you started this, as you said before, as a necessity entrepreneur, and you were able to grow it into an opportunity oppor- opportunity an opportunity entrepreneurship. And so what about the people who are, it's an escape, it's the new path, they're working in a company, they've got a full time job, they see an opportunity, or they're trying to build an alternate way of making money. Um, When do you go all in? When do you keep two things juggling at the same time? When is it your side hustle? And how do you make the decision to go in whole hog?
1: I think you make the decision based on what the business is telling you, right? When you're, in, when you're involved in it, when you're enmeshed in it day to day, the business is telling you what it demands. It's telling you whether, um, whether you've got more um, demand than you currently have supply for. And that may be enough of an indication that you have to gear up. You know, you're, you listen to your clients, talk to your clients. Um, And then look at your life and decide if that's really a path that you want to go down or if you are more comfortable being somebody else's employee and getting your benefits that way rather than having to uh, buy the health insurance and open the 401k (laughs) on your own.
0: Right. And be responsible for all of it. Um, I'm glad that you come back to also that kind of emotional self-awareness. In the book, you kind of laid out some key questions that you should ask yourself, attributes, attributes. Um, characteristics that are important for entrepreneurs to be successful. Could you share some of them with us?
1: Um, You know, I actually do not have the book in front (laughs) of me. So um, and and I just don't remember them off the top of my head, except that I know that for opportunity entrepreneurs, the ones that are looking to grow fast and exploit the needs of the niche in the marketplace, you really have to be willing to go all in.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. So uh, let me share some of them with you because they really struck me because they all also sort of reminded me of the same characteristics that um, I used to assess in art students who really belonged in art school as opposed to studying art um, as a side hobby or as a minor. And it was that question of passion. Can you, are you obsessed? Do you have the grit? Are you willing to, it's not just are you willing to go all in, but is your head all in? And how did you discover that you had the kind of focus and passion that you needed in order to commit to your own entrepreneurial venture?
1: I was, I had been thinking for a very, very long time that I wanted to build a platform um, bigger than me. Um, You know, I've been my own brand for a long time. But I also know that there are a lot of women who need advice about their money, personal finance information, and I am not i am not necessarily the one that everybody wants to listen to, um, and yet everybody needs the information. So I wanted to build a platform that would allow for more voices than my own so that more women could get this trusted information than they need.
0: It's wonderful to hear how you took your passion, this thing that's driven so much work that you've done, so many of us that you've affected, um, and that you figured out your own strengths and weaknesses and how to leverage it into a sustainable and impactful business. How did you first decide who you would invite on to be those voices?
1: We are still a work in progress, but we're (laughs) growing organically. If you listen to my podcast, you know that there are other members of our team. Kelly Holtgren is our resident, um, millennial. Um, we've got, uh, Catherine Tuggle who spent many years at Ink Magazine, um, working on other kinds of projects and we have invited other women to, to start joining us. So it's a, it's a work in progress.
0: Um, aside from all the things that you've known all along and all the things, there's all the things you're learning from all of these amazing people who join you on the show. One of the things that I hear from the people we talk to and my own friends um, is this question of if I'm not where I should be, if I don't have, let's say I'm in my 50s, six times my salary put away for retirement, is it hopeless? I should join a commune? What can I do to start closing the gap? Um, You should
1: should – Absolutely take a look at your numbers and absolutely take a look at what it is going to cost you to live in retirement. But there is a lot that can be done by working a little bit longer, by delaying Social Security as long as you can, and by making some conscious shifts about downsizing your life, life, whether that is moving to a smaller place or moving to a less expensive place tax-wise. There is a lot of, there, there, are, there are so many things you can do. And the, the most heartening things that I've been reading about retirees is that they are resilient. Um, they're making the right decisions for their own financial lives. And retirees who are already retired are a lot less worried about running out of money in retirement than those of us who are looking at retirement in the road ahead.
0: That's amazing. So it comes back to what you said earlier, that we have these emotional relationships with money that make us anxious about it, that make us seek safety, but that we also can have more power over our own money than we realize, and thus more power over our lives. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, Jean, if people want to find more, first of all, how do they find the podcast?
1: Um, They find the podcast on... Um, Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or by going to hermoney.com slash sign up.
0: And if people want to just start reading quietly um, and to learn more about where they can start to take the next steps to improve their financial realities, where would you point them?
1: Again, hermoney.com slash sign up. That'll get you on our newsletter list.
0: Terrific. And then they can also write in with specific questions for you?
1: You bet. Absolutely. We've, we've got a very, very active mailbag.
0: <laughs> and this is what, the 12th book?
1: Uh, 11th.
0: 11th. So they're, and they're all available on Amazon? I think so. Okay. At the very least, this one is, and I highly recommend it. So, Jean, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the program today for all your advice, for all the work you've done for us all along. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Laura. Take care. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. You can find me at Laura's Arrow. And you can find our podcast on SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. Of course, I'd like to thank my producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'm Laura Arrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week everybody and start saving. Yes, it's unbelievable. When there's nothing left to hurt inside. And we'll shine. Yes,
1: we'll shine.